My name is Alison Stibby. I'm uh, the Head of Communications here at the Oxford Martin School. And you're here at the very start of a collaborative seminar series. We're co-hosting with the Oxford Institute of Aging. It's a really a key aim of the school to help spark new ideas by bringing people from across the university and elsewhere together. So this is really aimed to be a cross-disciplinary series that is bringing economists, uh, political scientists, philosophers and demographers together to tackle some really tough questions about what do we owe future generations. In this series you'll hear a bit about climate change, fiscal policy and demographic trends. It was inspired by Dr. Kenneth Howes from the Oxford Institute of Aging. He's here today and he's going to give a very brief introduction to our main speaker. Thanks. Thank you, thank you very much, Alison, and thank you all for coming. It's, it's really pleasing to see such a, a large and mixed turnout, especially when lots of faces that I don't know, which is probably a very, a, a very good idea. I just want to say a very few words to, um, to encourage you to come, not just to one or two of these <coughs> seminars, but to come to all of them, because they're intended really to form a whole. Um, uh, the, some of them, I hope, will be greater than the parts. And the idea behind the series is to examine the role of intergenerational justice in debates about the long-term consequences of present policies. And I put it that way, since it's at least arguable that we could perhaps handle, handle these problems without any ideas of intergenerational justice at all. We can think of that as a, as a, as a default position, which can be tested uh, in, the, in the seminars that will be happening over the next, over the next eight weeks. And it was also part of my aim to ensure that these issues are anchored in current policy debates. So it, it's not going to be a series of lectures uh, just within political theory or moral philosophy. But we're going to look at particular policy problems and see whether and how uh, issues of intergenerational justice arise in trying to make the best decisions in, in, in those policy areas. Uh, and finally, I hope that the, the series as a whole will review different kinds of arguments, um, or rather review arguments for and against different standards uh, of intergenerational justice. And I'm very, very pleased that we're uh, starting this time with uh, fiscal policy. And it's, uh, I have great pleasure in introducing Professor Peter Heller, who's going to talk to you uh, um, on the fiscal crisis, which, which you all know about, and whether or not it's forcing us to rethink our intergenerational compact with the elderly. And I first came across Peter Heller uh, in a book he wrote, and it's one of the books that uh, inspired me to in engage with this topic. And do I have the date of publication? Yeah, 2003. And it was Who Will Pay? Coping with Aging Societies, Climate Change, and Other Long-Term Fiscal Challenges. And I, I think that what we're trying to do, one of the things we're trying to do in this course of seminars, if I could revise that question, is to ask who should pay, not who will pay, not who should pay. And Professor Heller spent a, a good deal of his career uh, working as an economist with the International Monetary Fund, ending up as Deputy Director for Fiscal Affairs, um, and he left the International Monetary Fund in 2006 to go to Johns Hopkins University and the School of International Studies there. So if I can hand it to you, Professor Hart. Okay. Um, I hope this isn't too much of a bait and switch. Because I mean, I, I mean I, the topic is, is the, face, the fiscal crisis forcing a rethink of our intergenerational compact with the elderly. But in a way, I'm, it's kind of a, I wanted to get you in here and I thought maybe that would do it. I will talk a bit about that, but not a lot about the, fiscal, the current fiscal crisis because it's really kind of, the issue is really intergenerational justice as it relates to burden sharing of the elderly looking ahead, but very much with this, with the reference how these concepts are affected by the fact of an aging population. Now, but let me just, on the fiscal crisis, I mean, there's no question I could have given this talk four years ago and I probably would have said very much the same thing I'm going to say now. I mean, um, it was just as compelling a topic then as it is now. I mean, we've been thinking about aging populations and the implications for fiscal policy for a long time and with a concern as to whether social insurance commitments would be fiscally sustainable um, given the aging of industrial country populations. But certainly 
we are in 2011, and it's a much, we see the problem as much more dire, much more difficult, perhaps as a consequence of this recent financial crisis. We've seen loss in asset values of many households in their portfolio. We've seen this dramatic increase in, in public debt. We've seen this perceived urgency by many industrial countries to restore fiscal sustainability. We're also confronted by a recession which is not over yet, and, and all that, this recent fiscal crisis, financial crisis, has so weakened the public debt position of many countries that you might say that these hard budgetary trade-offs that we knew we were going to start to face looking ahead five, 10 years are now kind of brought into the present and we're finding real hard choices as between growth promoting investments, essential public services, you know, support for education, and these social insurance outlays for the elderly and, and with the prospect it's going to get even worse. So, e but even if there had not been a financial crisis, all these issues soon enough would be would have been confronted by industrial countries. There's no question about that. I think it's also worth noting as a preface that um, even for those countries whose fiscal positions have not been really severely weakened by the financial crisis, and here I'm talking about principally emerging market countries. Um, they are also confronting the prospect of an aging population, not with the immediacy that the industrial countries are facing, but with a time lag of maybe 15, 20 years. And, and for these countries, which constitute a really substantial part of the world's population, the consideration of what kind of social insurance policy framework is intergenerationally just is very much a live issue for them, whether we're talking about China or India or, or some of the Southeast Asian countries or many of the Latin American countries. Okay, how do I want to proceed on, on this? Um, I'm going to start out, it's constantly changing, it was different about an hour and a half ago, but there you are. Um, I want to start out by just kind of clarifying three broad concepts. One is what we mean by an aging population. Second, what, what we mean by intergenerational support. And third, you know, just some smattering of, of reference to what we mean by justice and what, what constitutes an acceptable approach to justice, and then look at this issue of aging populations and intergenerational support. Now, what do we mean by an aging population? There are lots of aging populations. You know, China is aging, Europe is aging, Latin America is aging, but they really are at very different points in this aging process. An aging population is not the same thing as an aged population. We are moving into an aged population in many industrial countries. But certainly China and Singapore and Korea are all aging populations and um, they're just a, a might say, different phase of it. Now, the source of an aging population is pretty clear, I would suspect, to all of you, which is simply that we've observed this significant drop in fertility rates. I was in Singapore two days ago and they, uh, the newspaper headline in the of that day was fertility, the fertility rate is sunk to 1.16. Remember, you need two to sort of reproduce yourself. So they're worried about this. So the source of an aging population is the sharp drop in fertility rates that we've observed across the, most countries in the world. And of course, the continuing, and I really stress the word continuing, increase in longevity that we are observing. It's kind of startling that we continue to see that increase in longevity happening. Um, and I think one of the things about an aging population and this issue of intergenerational justice is that this has come as a surprise. I mean, when our social insurance frameworks were designed, they were not designed with the expectation that we were going to have such low fertility rates or high rate amounts, length of longevity. Um, so that certainly conditions and is a significant factor in understanding the problems that we deal with an intergenerational justice and interdependent intergenerational support. But I think it's important to also say that for many emerging market countries, it's less of a surprise. I mean, they have watched what happened to the industrial countries. They are living it. They're very aware that they have a low fertility problem and that life expectancy is increasing. So for them, you would think it shouldn't be as much of a surprise and shouldn't be so adversely um, affecting how they perceive this problem. Now, there, I think there are two key phases of the demographic transition, which I just want to put out there. The first phase is the, is the phase of, of falling fertility and, and increasing longevity. Well, that's you know, as it happens. And so essentially, this starts happening. And what happens is you get a, a, a start seeing a declining share of the young in the population. Um, you start seeing, over time, uh, this bulge of 
those in the working age group in the population, but you still have a low elderly dependency ratio. There still aren't that many elderly out there. You still have the kind of traditional, to some extent, the, the, the pyramid is starting to change, the age pyramid, but you don't have a lot of elderly, and you don't have as many children. You've got a, a declining youth dependency rate, and this, this means two things. It means, one, you have the potential for a much higher savings rate because you don't have any elder, as many elderly people to support, and you don't have as many young people to support. And the other thing it implies is you've got this bulge in the working age population, which, if you can exploit it, is great for growth. And many people argue that you know, what we saw in East Asia, Southeast Asia and East Asia, and now what we're seeing in China, to represents to some extent the ability to exploit this very large pool of, of labor um, and um, for growth. The second phase of, of this demographic transition is where we are now and moving into as industrial countries, namely where you're starting to see this sharp increase in the number of, of elderly. You still ha don't have a lot of, the young population share is still lower. Um, you may or may not still have a significant share of, in the working age population. We're observing in many countries that the share in the working age population is stabilizing, if not declining. And in extreme cases, we're seeing the prospect of declining absolute population size and even decline in the absolute size of the labor force. Um, and of course, this is matched by this increase in the, in, in the um, in the elderly dependency ratio, which we know is, um, is, is essentially the 65 plus population over the working age population of 15 to 64. And this obviously is, is the source of, of why we worry looking forward, because when you have pay-as-you-go systems of social insurance where those in the working age are are essentially taxed to pay the benefits to those who are elderly, um, and the ratios start turning really adverse. And so instead of having five workers per elderly, you have one and a half workers per elderly, as we can anticipate in a Korea or Japan looking forward. You know, it's a hell of a burden to expect these, the workers to have to pay. Um, and so that's where, where the big problem comes. I kind of distinguish the second phase into two parts, phase 2A and 2B, and I think it's worth just mentioning that. Phase 2A is the period which we're now entering into as industrial countries, where we're going to start seeing a, a continuing sharp increase in the number of over 65, but still not very much change in the, in the share of the elderly who are over 85. But sooner or later, um, we're going to start in, in another 15, 20 years, um, I'm 64, I'm the leading edge of the baby boom. We're gonna start seeing me in 20 years, I'm gonna be entering this phase where I'm over 85, my mother is 94, and we're gonna start seeing a real sharp increase in the number who are over age 85, um, the very elderly. And one of the things about which, and I call attention to it only because we now know that some, under current technologies, something like one out of every two persons who is over 85 is likely to have some form of dementia. S serious enough that long-term care is going to be a real challenge. And so it's, it's worth mentioning that. Now, I think there are two important points that come out of this discussion on the issues of intergenerational justice um, and, and aging population. Just one is that, of course, as I said, it's what creates the problem is that we have a social insurance system that is keyed to this fixed age of retirement at 65 and this long, long period in which people are retired. And, um, and you know, if you were changing this number from 65 to something like whatever, 70 or whatever, you know, it wouldn't be as much of a problem. Recently, um, in the last several months, there was a very interesting paper which I saw, I didn't bring it, I should have, where um, alternative dependency ratios were calculated. Um, one of them was called the prospective um, old age dependency rate. And what that consisted of, take the ratio of the number of people whose life expectancy is less than 15 years, and divide that by the number of people who are age 20 plus with life expectancy more than 20 years, more than 15 years. So that, that says, all right, treat people as healthy aged um, if they've got a life expectancy of more than 15 years. Well, I certainly have a life expectancy of more than 15 years and will have for a while. The other uh, measure that was talked about 
in this, it was a New England Journal of Medicine or something like that, this article, was take the share of um, the 20 plus population who were disabled and divide that by the, the 20 plus population non-disabled. And what's interesting about both of these measures, uh, both characterizing, you might say, what are the percentage of the, of, of the working age population who, uh, who in print, or 20 plus population who conceivably can't work, is neither of these change very much if you look forward. They really, you know, this horrendous increase in the dependent, elderly dependency ratio that we see in all the, in all the re reports um, doesn't happen when we define dependency in a different way. So that's the first important point to make. Um, it doesn't mean that the social insurance policy framework automatically would change. That would have to be addressed. The second point that I think is important when you're talking about aging populations is to understand that aging populations have implications for growth. And growth conditions what is possible with, with respect to the ease of intergenerational support for the elderly. You know, in the first phase I described, when you've got this big bulge in the labor force, you know, the, the issue is can you exploit this bulge um, to produce high growth and get your incomes up? You know, the Chinese always talk about you know, can we be rich by the time we get to be old or elderly or aged? Or are we going to be elderly before we are rich? Um, and you know, they are struggling hard to be rich before they get old. Um, it can make a big difference. You know, the contrast between Asia and, and, and China in this regard and Latin America is very striking. The Latin Americans did not exploit this period and so their incomes are much lower than they could have been if they had had much higher rates of growth. And the second relationship between an aging population and growth is simply you know, how do you address the aging of your population or an aged population and still sustain significantly rapid growth. Um, and that is, you know, that was at the core of what the Lisbon agenda was like and was, was about, was looking at, the, we have an aging population, what do we need to do to facilitate exploitation um, and use of the human resources that we have, whether it's higher labor force participation rate of women, higher labor force participation rate of the elderly, getting our technological skills up so that we have a higher productivity for the, the more limited workforce we have. Um, you know, clearly things are a lot easier if you are wealthier. Clearly things are much easier if you're growing rapidly. It fosters a much better environment for thinking about intergenerational trade-offs. Benjamin Friedman wrote a really interesting book several years ago about the importance of economic growth. And one of the points he made was, you know, if you're in a period of economic growth, you're a hell of a lot more optimistic. Your perceptions are much more kind of um, heady um, in that regard. Okay, second thing I want to, key point I wanted to kind of talk about um, was what we mean by this issue of um, intergenerational support. Um, now, Obviously, we could be talking about intergenerational support in a very narrow sense. Um, Adrian and I were having dinner last night, and I was asking him, of course, questions about his children and were they prepared to support him when he gets to be old. Um, and and I was, he was also talking about his 90-year-old mother, who's very much in need of care. And um, so you can be talking about intergenerational support in a narrow familial sense, the relationship between you and your children. and. Will your children support you when you're old? And your relationship with your mother and, and, and aunts or whatever. But clearly in many industrial countries, we moved away from this narrow familial definition toward one which is more impersonal, where we have this concept of the pooling um, that one generation is supporting um, other generations, later or earlier cohorts. And, it, and, and we, we use the fiscal, fiscal means, taxes, or payroll contributions in some form to acquire a pool of resources from a given generation which is used to pay benefits to um, an older generation. Um, and so, I mean, and, and one obvious element of this, of this intergenerational support relates to the, probably the main topic of this, which is the future support of the aged um, by the now young or the unborn generations. And that's what maybe this whole seminar series is to some extent about. Um, but, but it's also relevant, we can't completely focus only on 
you know, will my kids and my grandchildren, my kids are alive, my grandchildren don't exist yet, will they support me in the style to which I'm accustomed and pay the benefits that ostensibly I've been earning? But also we have to be re as relevant as consider the fact that I, during the course of my working life of the last 45 years, you know, both I've been supporting the current elderly um, and I also was supporting those who were no longer alive, but for many years I was supporting a lot of elderly who have now passed on. And so, and I've acquired to some extent the perception that I have claims toward these benefits because I put in my time as a supporter of, future, of elderly generations and I expect to be um, comparably supported later on. And, and in principle, the scope for this intergenerational support um, is quite extensive. I mean, it clearly is perceived in the area of, of pensions and social pension benefits in most industrial countries. But obviously we're seeing it in the United States and, and most countries as well, um, that there's, a, there's a, a right to benefits and medical care. Um, and as we see in the United States, medical care is the, really the main kicker, the thing that's really the most worrisome sort of source of intergenerational support because with improved technologies and drugs and devices and and surgical techniques, you know, and, and the possibility of advancing technologies on so many fronts, you know, the cost of medical care continues to rise rapidly and, and pushing up the bill for, for support of the elderly. And, and of course, you know, this, this potential for intergenerational support also relates to this issue I mentioned of the, of the dementia, the physical inabilities of the 85 plus population. And, that, and that's not as much on the, you know, on the, on, informal benefits across all these countries, but it, it's going to have to be confronted because the, that burden is going to have to be borne somehow or another. Now, it's also important when we're talking about intergenerational support, I think I have to put this down um, as well, that it can be in the form of cash, um, namely financial benefits being paid to the elderly or in support of medical care, but it can also, but intergenerational support also takes place in the form of services. So. If, if, you, if, if you, Adrian, are spending a lot of time taking care of your mother, it's not through the public system, but it is a form of intergenerational support. It takes, it's a burden in terms of time and whatever, and that is a, um, you know, that is a form of intergenerational support which has to be factored in um, as, 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 a, as a burden, although it is not, in many countries, not formally a, a state burden. It's not something which the working generation together is, is, is doing. Um, I also think that in considering the claims for intergenerational support, um, it's not only the fact that I um, have been contributing to my parents and my grandparents in the past for Social Security, but there is the sort of notion that, that's worth thinking about, which is that my children and my grandchildren have benefited from the work that I did. You know, the, their standard of living doesn't come out of thin air. It comes out of the contributions from my grandparents and my parents and my generation. And our standard of living you know, reflects to some extent our investments and our, our work effort. And that also contributes somewhat as a claim. Okay, so that's, I think it's important to put that down, discussing what we mean by, and I should, just one more final point. Intergenerational support can go both directions. And so we do see discussion in a place like Japan that you know, the elderly are now quite clearly seeing that they may have to be providing support for the working age generation to some extent, whether it's in housing or, or in bequests or, in, or in, in direct transfers. And that's happening a lot more in some industrial countries. Okay, the last big issue to put on the table is this question of what standards of justice should influence the extent of intergenerational support. And, I, and I'm not a philosopher, um, but I, I did get into, in preparing this talk, I started to ask this question, well, what do we mean by justice? And what is, how do we define standards of justice? And there were three kinds of approaches that I, that I paid attention to. One was one that, that I read about from the Oxford community 10 years ago when I was writing my book by Beckerman and Pasek. And this was, they were focusing on the issue of intergenerational justice in, in, a, in the climate change context. And you know, they asked whether it is fair for us to impose a burden on future generations in terms of the costs of climate change. And at the end of their book, they essentially said, you know, future unborn, genera unborn generations cannot be said to have any rights. 
Um, so we must rule out intergenerational justice as our guide to our obligations to them. But they did argue, um, and this is consistent, I think, with what we're going to see in a second, that we need to consider the interests of future generations, even if they have no rights per se, particularly since we may try to impose burdens on these future generations, which we're certainly trying to do. So that's one way of thinking about what is just, which is consider their interests, but you know, they don't have any rights, um, so to speak. Amartya Sen wrote a book very recently, and his perspective has been called the consequentialist um, perspective. Um, in, a, in, a, uh, um, in a recent review of this book, um, and, and, and the, the gist of it was that we can evaluate and we can rank alternative social states of affair according to, and it seems a bit circular, the degree to which they embody justice and other social values. But he essentially says an impartial spectator, somebody who was, would take into account everyone's circumstances and well-being, and that spectator would need to balance alternative perspectives, both macroeconomic and microeconomic, as to what is fair in terms of an intergenerationally just solution. So the concept is somebody steps back, he's impartial, he, kinds of, he essentially kinds of weighs the pros and cons of, 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 of what we are, what are the commitments that we've established to, our, to given generations and what can we ask about the burdens of, of, toward, of future generations. And then, of course, there is Rawls, um, and this is Sen, and, and John Rawls, now John Rawls did not address this issue specifically. I'm sort of leaping from what I've read about John Rawls. And what Rawls did was ask the question, if you were designing ex ante an income distribution, you know, what would you, and, and, and you were asking someone who doesn't know where they stand in income distributional situation, you know, what would they think is a fair income distribution, that that would be the, the approach to sort of saying what is just. And so I thought of that and I thought, well, you presumably could do the same thing and say um, a similar thought experiment and, and say, um, if, if you were to, or you or I, were to be of a future generation, um, what would we think of as fair you know, recognizing what previous generations may or may not have done for us. It's like asking my kids, um, or my grandchildren if they existed, or put my, uh, try and put myself in the place of, a gr of these people and say, you know, what would be a fair burden for them to feel that they should honor looking forward? Um, so note the contrast. Sen explores fairness in terms of the broad range of considerations that influence how we balance past commitments to those who are elderly now or who will be elderly in the future relative to an attention to what is fair or reasonable burden to be placed on those who will be working in the future and their children. It's largely, I think, a microeconomic argument. Whereas Rawls is saying, you know, we are forced to confront the fact of the macroeconomic realities of an aging population, an aging population structure, and the fact that whether we like it or not, you know, there's going to be this very warped demographic structure which is going to pose a hell of a heavy burden on the, the young and, and, and the unborn looking ahead, and is this really a fair burden to be, um, to be put on them? And, and would we really feel it was fair if we were in their shoes to, to accept this burden? Okay, so um, the course of this lecture, the course of my preparation of this lecture, had me reading about Rawls and Sen, and fortuitously, around the same time as I was preparing this lecture, the United States Budget Commission, two budget commissions, issued their reports in the United States um, about how the hell do we solve the, the budget crisis. And I went to a, working at SICE, I walked you know, 100 feet down the street and went to a Brookings symposium where my good friends Henry Aaron and Gene Sturley were on the podium talking about their perspective on what the recommendations of the budget commissions were. And, and that led me to an awareness of a debate that Henry and Gene had had on, on solving the budget crisis. And, and when I listened and read that debate, it became clear to me that in a way they were kind of um, two sides of this um, they were kind of reflecting the Sen and the Rawls perspective. And I think it's 
interesting to, to, because, in effect, they were asking the question about what is a fair intergenerational distribution of sharing of the burden. Now, Henry, Henry Aaron, um, said, he asked the question, you know, are, are we being excessively generous to those who are elderly now and will be elderly in the future, or are we being you know, unfair um, to those who will be now elderly or will be? I mean, how do we look at what we're providing and promising to these people, my, my generation, the existing elderly? And Henry said, you know, in the United States at least, Social Security is hardly, it's like the UK system, you might say. It is not a generous um, um, social insurance framework. It's got a very low rate of return relative to the rate of return that somebody in the private sector would get from their pension contributions. So we're certainly not generous by any means um, in, 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 the, in the pension sphere. Um, the large deficit that arises in Medicare and Medicaid, which is very large, um, does not come from being excessively generous, um, but really comes out of the inefficiency of the U.S. healthcare system um, and the impact of technological progress in, in medical care, um, which, and the, the impact of technological progress is of value to every generation, not only my generation, but my kids' generation, my grandchildren. And he said the other source of the fiscal deficit, of course, is legacy debt. You know, one that from a social, we all know that in social insurance frameworks, the early generations make out like bandits with very high rates of return, and that once the system matures, the rate of return comes down to a far more reasonable or even low level. Um, but that legacy debt, which is the excessive benefits paid when the system was flush, um, is like any other form of public debt from wars or whatever and has to be borne intergenerationally. Um, so Henry says, you know, we have to recognize one that we're dealing with rigidities and difficulties associated with historical inefficiencies. One can't completely ignore the fact that we have had understandings over the last several decades with past intergenerational commitments and compacts. Um, and so Henry says, what we have to do is program by program, try and rationalize and make judgments based on the pros and cons of particular policy programs and see what appears fair in their specific context. Very, to me, very, a very micro approach. All right, let's look at Social Security and see, you know, should we try and adapt it and how do we adapt it? to try and make, to keep the cost down, but still looking at past commitments and what is fair. Let's see what we can do to rationalize the way we provide health care. That's how Henry saw the matter. Now, Gene, Gene Sterling, seemed to be much closer to, um, to the Rawlsian perspective and with a much more macro kind of focus. You know, Gene says, you know, everything you're saying, Henry, is right. I can't disagree, but ultimately we have to consider what are the overall resource demands that are arising from past policy commitments that we're sticking to future generations. Um, and is it fair to shift this burden onto future generations? Um, and if you have this macro perspective, you have to add up the numbers and see you know, how large is the burden and what kind of large tax rate was being, would be imposed in terms of payroll contributions or income taxes on future generations. Um, and this comes out of all this demographic structural change. It may have been unanticipated, but it's there, and we can't deny it's there. Um, and as Gene puts it, you know, we have a system in the United States where essentially whatever happens, technological change, increased longevity, the whole, the, the whole impact of, that, of those changes in terms of the financial burden is stuck on the younger and unborn generations. Is that fair? That, you know, that they are the ones that get the burden from whatever happens, and the elderly are shielded from all this. And, and Sterling goes even further and says, you know, the current policy regime violates what he calls fiscal democracy. Present commitments deprive future legislatures of the ability to make budgetary choices. Um, so I, I saw this kind of a Rawlsian perspective that if we abstracted from our own situation, would we see this as fair if we were the ones that were having to bear these burdens um, looking forward. Let me just add there a couple more perspectives, you might say, that uh, of a, a conceptual nature on this question of intergenerational support. One is the Hans Werner Sinn perspective, something I came across several many years ago when I was writing my book. And Hans Wernersen wrote a very interesting article, and he said, you know, my generation, the baby boob generation, you know, we decided not to have as many children. We had 
less, we had two, less than two children. And you know, we made a decision to underinvest in human capital. So we should have compensated by over saving in financial capital and to take care of ourselves. We shouldn't have counted on the young since we underinvested in the number of young. And it's not fair for the young to get stuck with our decision not to sufficiently accumulate sufficient financial capital. Um, so that's, that's another kind of, kind of look into the question. I also, um, I've, been on a, I've been on a kind of physical fitness kick recently. I've been reading about older people and what you need to do to take care of your body. And, and I've also been reading a lot in the, in the world of chronic diseases. And it's made me sort of aware of the, what I would call a chronic disease perspective, which is, you know, presumably there are large percentages of the population in many emerging market countries that, that where the chronic disease problem is going to be very large. And it that chronic disease problem arises from bad health behavior. It arises from tobacco smoking, it arises from bad diet, it uh, arises from not doing the exercise. And is it fair that if you've been screwing around with your health by not taking care of your body, that you should stick the burden of that onto your children to pay for the, the medical consequences of your bad behavior. Um, it doesn't seems to me that that's also not fair. You know, if, if you've been treating yourself, your body badly, well, you should have to pay for it. What about if we observe what actually is out there in terms of how countries are actually focusing on this intergenerational burden distribution. And I think I've classified three different approaches that you can observe in, in country systems. Um, the first one is what I would call the approach of you are on your own. Um, and um, call this the Chilean model, basically, where individuals are, um, are and, or you might say a generation is responsible for themselves looking forward. They must save for their own aged years or work longer. Um, and I say, you can see this as a, in a generational sense. If each cohort or generation should be seen as largely self-sufficient, essentially responsible for its own upkeep. Now, it also means that, that genera each generation may be also subject to risk in its own way. I mean, there are a lot of unanticipated events that may affect the rates of return that are earned by savings, and it may put a given generation in a worse, a worse position than another generation. But the Chilean model essentially says each generation is it's kind of on its own. You may see the government involved with a mandate on defined contribution systems simply to deal with the myopia problem, to make sure that people actually take care of themselves. Um, you may, the Chilean system does care, have, a, have a pooled element in the sense that it does have a minimum guarantee to that if you've been contributing all your life to the pension system and your rate of return or your, or your income is below a certain level, they kick in to, to provide a minimum, so might say an anti-destitution um, level. But the Chilean system is very much self-responsibility. A second model which you see out there is you reap what you sow. Um, literally and figuratively, I, I like to put. Um, and I call this the largely the Singapore model, but it's also the Chinese model. Um, it's intergenerational support, but in a narrow familial sense, not in, a, in the sense of a, of, of a given generation responsible for the, uh, the older generations. In Singapore, children are formally responsible for caring for their parents and grandparents. But, but again, as in Chile, the government requires significant contributions from each worker's wages um, to the Central Provident Fund, and that's not only for pensions, but also for um, medical care, savings, accounts. Um, and so it, it's a mix between self-responsibility of a given individual and familial intergenerational burden sharing. But this is, as I said, very different from assigning responsibility to an extended uh, younger generation impersonally. And I think, you know, you're, in a way, it's, I don't know if it's conscious or not, and it's, the, it's what you see in China for, the, for all in time. You know, China basically, its whole pension system fell apart. They're now trying to reconstruct the pension system. There are segments of the population that have what you would regard as familiar occupational pension schemes, but a large percentage of the population essentially don't, and they're having to save on their own. And, and again, 
it is expected in the Chinese society that children are responsible for their elderly. And then the, the last model that we see is one that you will find familiar, um, which is the, the, what we see in Western industrial countries. We are all in this together. Um, and this is the, whether it's, the, you want to call it the beverage system or the Bismarckian system, but it's very much an intergenerational support where each younger generation um, supports the elderly generation. It's a system where future workers and children um, have derived benefits from earlier generations in terms of human and physical capital endowments, technological advances, um, higher real income levels, and thus they are indebted to past generations for their standard of living. And so this is the system that we are observing now in industrial countries that we are now seeing under such kind of strains uh, to deal with. And, and, and there's a real enormous question mark as to how this is going to how this is going to fly looking forward. Will the burden continue to be borne by the younger generation, or will it start to be shared among future workers and the elderly themselves? And we're seeing it breaking down. We're seeing it breaking down in Greece. We're seeing it breaking down in Ireland. We're seeing it breaking down in a number of the United States states and localities where there's been clear underprovision of, of funds and there may even be bankruptcies going on in the pension area. And we're also seeing it breaking down in the sense that there, there are a number of elements of the social insurance fabric which aren't really in place. We talked about long-term care a bit ago, and that's an element where that's, where it's, you know, where, it, where in a, not every country has figured out how that problem of the, of the demented and the, is, going to be, is going to be dealt with. Okay. But when you start thinking about this issue of intergenerational justice, what also emerges is that this is very much an, emer an evolving story. Um, you see that this question of intergenerational justice is very much affected by the economic situation and by the policy context of a country, and it's buffeted by unanticipated developments. It makes the thing much more, even much more unstable. We, we certainly see that contexts matter. Um, you know, what could be the approach to what can be considered fair in terms of a given intergenerational justice result is affected by this economic and policy context, particularly when you've got an aging population. Um, demographic surprises is obviously the first thing we're talking about. Um, the social insurance framework that we see was designed for the assumption that we were going to have a positive growth in the population and um, you know, the famous overlapping generation um, generations model um, that Samuelson talked about way back in the 40s was presu presumed that you were going to have a positive growth at N, that the population pyramid would continue to sort of be larger at the bottom. Um, and it was kind of a Ponzi scheme. You know, as long as the, pop the young were growing, you know, they were always enough of them more out there to continue to support a, fewer, a, sh a smaller share of the elderly. It was these systems were never designed with the intent, with the expectation that that would not, ha that would fall apart and that you'd start seeing um, population growth actually potentially negative. That was not the kind of model that was, was kind of expected. And, but that's what you see when you have fertility rates that are under 2, 2.0 or 1, whatever it is. Second thing we see when we're talking about these intergenerational support mechanisms is they are very much cultural and traditional and Culture matters. You know, the perspective of the Koreans and the Singaporeans and the Chinese is really quite different from ours. I mean, they have, you know, they're, you know, they're each culture has its own kind of perspective on what is expected of different generations. But although I, when I say this, I also see that that in a globalized world, these kind of perspectives are being impacted and changed. I gave this talk. Um, in an earlier kind of different form a few days ago in, in Singapore. And one of my friends, T.N. Srinivasan, who's a very distinguished uh, economist um, emeritus from Yale, um, and I was talking about this question of, I said to him, in India, for instance, I assume that there are multi-generational households where the, the elderly live with, the, with the, their kids and, and, and they all live together and whatever. And he said, no, that's breaking down in India. 
He said, actually, you know, kids are leaving, they're going off, they're migrating to the cities, and it's not at all the case anymore in India that you have these multi-generational households where living with the parents as, or being grandparents in, in the same house. And the same thing was pointed out by my friends in Singapore. They were saying, in principle, this is the case, but you know, there's divorce and we have limited size of housing space and, and it's, it's, you know, it works when the grandparents live you know, a mile away. It doesn't work so well when, you know, parent, when kids leave and migrate to work in other countries or, or whatever. Context matters also in, in the, what I call the challenge of previous commitments. I mean, if you've designed a system like we have in the Western industrial countries, and then you're struck by these demographic shocks, you are still stuck with these accrued rights that I was describing earlier that I've accumulated over my lifetime or others have accumulated. And it's not so simple to just abandon these past con contributions. Um, um, it's not so simple to revise your policy design, and you see that clearly in the UK when you're talking about pension reform, whatever. Um, growth matters. Um, I mentioned that earlier. I mean, clearly, if you've got growth taking place, you're in a much better um, situation. Um, but growth matters when we have to, when we're forced to deal with these budgetary trade-offs. You know, when when the government is looking at the budget, um, does it really essentially say, well, we, can't, we just have to honor all these commitments of the elderly, which means we have to slash investments on education, we have to slash investments on infrastructure, we have to slash you know, all the growth-promoting R&D that would keep the growth engines revved up and realizing high productivity. You, know, you really are facing hard trade-offs because growth matters and, and you don't want to you know, short-circuit investments that can, can sustain uh, rapid growth. Um, and the other point to make about growth is this is not a time-independent um, kind of exercise that we're talking about. You know, we are in a world that is changing very rapidly, where we've got these dramatic changes taking place in China and India and Vietnam, where I just wa was, and where you know, there's a tremendous growth dynamic, and we have to compete. If we want to continue to sustain our, our standard of living, we have to be competitive, we have to be growing, we have to be, continue to be at the cusp technological sort of frontier. And so it's not that we can just simply say, well, we have all these obligations to honor to the elderly um, and provide medical care, and we, have to, we can't spend money to sustain our growth. Context matters in another way, which is the playing field may shift in unanticipated ways. As I said at the outset, four years ago, we, the IMF, those in the European Commission, were doing all our studies looking at the implications of an aging population for spending on health and education and pensions, and we were, um, we were trying to figure out what it meant about the appropriate fiscal policy. It was nice to be able to do that when the United States public debt was 40% of GDP, when the UK public debt was probably not much different and most countries were much lower, and suddenly we've got Number one, we've got a much higher level of public debt appropriately because we had to pursue Keynesian kind of stimulus policies. Um, but we also now are confronting that the global capital market punishes us and countries that don't get their act together. And so we're, we're being constrained and hemmed in by the, the impact of the global capital market um, and its perceptions of the implications of a high level of debt. And so. We're, we're, you know, so we are finding ourselves forced to make push budgetary consolidation policies that accentuate the kind of budgetary trade-offs that we face and, as I said, kind of accelerate this issue of how we deal with the, um, the aging of the population. We're also, it's also worth just throwing out, I like to make this point, we are in a globalized world. And, you know, it's not that it's, it's not that it's just you guys in the UK that are aging and you can sort of figure out what your options are assuming there's nothing else going on out there. The fact of the matter is the whole world is aging and you've got very large weights of the population aging at different rates perhaps, but China and India. And the fact that all these countries are aging, you know, if, 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 if they're pursuing policies of this kind, you're on your own or reaping what you sow, it means they are probably facing that they have aging 
happening in the next 20 or 30 years. They are having to generate high savings to finance this, these retirements looking ahead. Um, and so you, you may have more capital sloshing around in the global economy. More capital sloshing around in the global economy could mean much lower interest rates in the global capital markets. And for those of you that have been savings for your retirement, you'd much rather have a high interest rate than a low interest rate. So the, you know, what's happening in the global economy is influencing you know, what you at a micro level in a country are trying to do to deal with your perspective on, on, um, on, on accumulating funds for retirement. And lastly, technological change is buffeting our views as to what's internationally just. I like to carry out the following thought experiment, which seems appropriate at the, at the Martin School, because you have all these people working on genetics and, and cancer research and and infectious and all that stuff. I was neuroscience and whatever. Suppose tomorrow Susan Greenfield, Baroness Greenfield, you know, publishes an article saying, I found it. I have found the genetic intervention that suddenly will, it's a pill that we can take. It will affect our genes and we all have five more years of additional longevity. Every one of us swallows this pill and we're all living five more years. So immediately around the world, longevity has gone up by five years across the board. Well, what would be a fair intergenerational solution as to who's going to pay for that? It suddenly means everybody in my generation is living five years longer, and, um, and is it really fair for my kids and my grandchildren to have to absorb the full burden of paying for that additional stock of, of elderly that are receiving pension benefits and whatever? It's, it's, a, it's an interesting question, um, and, but it's, and, and, it, and it's not that it may seem kind of far-fetched, but in fact, it's what's happening every day with medical science advancing. We know that we're developing you know, gen genetic-specific interventions that you know, can be tailored to individual people's genes. So the context is changing. And, and, and dealing with intergenerational justice gets even more complex. For, I mean, just, I'll throw a few quick ones out at you, and then I'm going to stop, I think, because just looking at the time. One is that, as I put it, the macro can trump the micro. Namely, you think you're pursuing policies that address the intergenerational justice issue, but it may give rise to behavioral incentives that offset or counter those policy intentions. Two quick ones to give you an example. One, right now, across Europe, we're, you know, we are pursuing policies of fiscal contraction um, in order to get the fiscal debt down because we're trying to take care of future generations and we're trying to not load more public debt on future generations. And yet, you know, I would say if I polled, I don't know how many economists in our room, but if I polled the economists in this room and said, do you think we're going to get an expansionary fiscal contraction, namely, we contract fiscal policy and the economy expands, or do you think we're going to get a Keynesian reaction, which is we contract fiscal policy and, and growth suffers? And I would say probably 95% of my economist colleagues would say growth's going to suffer. And so we are ostensibly pursuing a policy to deal with public debt at the expense, probably, of what we're really trying to do. Public debt burdens will be, rise, be rising. Another good example of this is the, is the, are the arguments of Ron Lee and Andy Mason, two demographers at Berkeley and, and East-West Center. Um, and they've been arguing that when you see countries try and strengthen their public transfer systems for the, for the elderly in benefits, that what it does essentially is erode savings incentives and leads to crowding out of private savings. And so, in effect, when you introduce these kind of private transfer, these public transfer schemes, it leads to a lower savings rate and a lower growth rate than you would otherwise have. And so that, in effect, trying to deal with intergenerational justice may actually make it much harder because you may, may not be as, as, um, as well off. The only other quickies I just want to mention, of course, is the political economy factor makes dealing with intergenerational justice difficult because um, you have the prospect of gerontocratic um, voting regimes where basically your electorate is largely old and, and trying to benefit itself and not taking care of itself. You also have the myopia of, public, of the public and politicians and self-interest being heavily biased toward current generations. And, um, and, and you also have the difficulty of making sensible policies that deal with problems of a 30 to 40, 50 year time span. Um, it is so much uncertainty about what the world is going to look like 
five years from now, let alone 20, 30, 40 years from now, um, it's very hard to, um, and we have bad tools, analytic tools, for trying to clarify the, the intergenerational distribution of, of benefits and burdens. And so putting all that together, it's not easy to kind of address these issues, and so we end up not doing it. I think I'm going to stop now, just looking at the time. I have, there's some more I can say, but maybe that'll come up in the answer. Well, thank you so much, Peter. That was a remarkably uh, lucid and clear, and uh, especially for someone who's not a, um, um, a professional economist, uh, absolutely tremendous presentation. Uh, my name is David Roden. I'm co-director of uh, ELAC, the Institute for Ethics, Law, and Armed Conflict within the Oxford Martin School. I was very pleased to be asked to come along and co-chair this event today. Uh, so we've got about 30, 35 minutes for questions. Maybe I'll kind of just kick us off with just a very few um, kind of thoughts before we open uh, to the floor. Um, I mean, you know, obviously, as I'm, I'm a moral philosopher by training, so I'm particularly interested in your comments on um, on justice. And I think what you know, absolutely wonderfully brought out is that these issues, you know, clearly are, are not simply technical issues. That it matters a huge amount the image of fairness of justice that we that we bring to these uh, to these debates and these issues. And it, but I guess one one point that I would perhaps take a little bit of. Um, uh, of, of a different view was in your characterization of, of Sen as, as it were, representing a consequentialist view of these issues. Because as, as I read Sen, what's really interesting is, is his, the way that he brings out um, the different competing images of, of justice that can, in many, in many cases, be equally appropriate. So, you know, so what, what's distinctive of all views of justice is that there's an element of impartiality. Sorry, so it's not a good enough reason to simply say, well, it's better for me that it turns out this way. Right? That's not a good enough reason. It has to have some element of impartiality. Right. And that, of course, is what John Rawls tries to get at with his methodology of the thought experiment of the veil of ignorance. Um, but then, you know, as, uh, you, know as you remember, there's this wonderful parable that he, he often uses to bring out these different aspects of, of justice. As he mentioned that there are three children all of whom um, have, a, have a claim on a flute, right? They all want to have this flute. And the first one says, well, look, I'm the only one who actually knows how to play this flute. So if you, if you give the flute to me, I'll be able to make beautiful music, and it'll be better for the world. Everybody will be able to enjoy that, 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 that music. None of the other of you can, can play. And that sounds like a pretty compelling reason. The second one says, well, you know, I'm the one who actually made the flute. You know, I took all the effort and energy. I made the flute, so therefore it should go to me. That, that sounds like a pretty compelling claim as well. It's a bit like you're, you, know, you reap what you sow idea. And the other one says, look, it should go to me because I, I haven't, I'm so poor. I have no other toys. This is the only toy that I would have, right? That also seems a very compelling claim for different reasons, right? Perhaps because we have, you know, underlying a lot of the ideas of, of, of kind of human rights is some idea of a basic minimal level of provision that you need to have a kind of, you know, a, a dignity. And each of those different ideas, I think Sen is saying, captures a relevant aspect of what we mean by, by justice. And a lot of what's most difficult, as you were you know, talking about the economics, each of these three conceptions of justice has very, very real um, uh, you know, traction with different, different aspects of this problem. But of course, what makes a lot of the issues that you're talking about particularly sticky um, is the, the problem that some of the people who are affected do not yet exist, right? This is the point that you, you raised about whether we should attribute rights to generations who are, who are no longer born. And you said at one point, I'm not sure if it's... Not like, yet born. Not yet born, exactly. Future generations who are not yet born. And you mentioned one, I don't think this is your view, you know, the idea that we should just, we shouldn't attribute rights to those... Yeah, that's Beckman. Right, right. And there's something kind of attractive about that, right? You know, if you don't exist, how can you possess rights? And there was a famous um, argument in ancient Greece to the effect that death was not a, um, a harm because when you're dead, there's no person there who can actually suffer that harm. So we shouldn't, nobody should fear death because there's, you know, there's no one there who actually experiences that harm. Now, most people think that that's based on a kind of sleight of hand that actually the dead can uh, experience harms. That's presumably why... And presumably can also have rights as well. It's presumably why we think that there's, there can be overriding reasons to respect the wills of those who are dead, even though they're not around to have it. So how can you understand that? Well, I mean, one way of understanding it is um, through a solution to a, a kind of notorious problem in moral philosophy about explaining um, what the basis of, of rights is. So, so what a lot of people since the Enlightenment have said is, well, humans have rights because they're rational beings. 
And you say, well, boy, hang on, what about you know, two-month-old babies? They're not particularly rational. Or people who have dementia, they don't look very rational. So there's this big problem, right? Well, well one, to my mind, the, you know, the, the most compelling answer to that is to say, well, when we think about attributing rights to humans, we, we look at a human, you know, the arc of a human life, and we look at the vulnerability that we have as babies, the vulnerability that we may have as very, very old um, uh, persons who may, may, may become senile or have dementia. And we, and we kind of attribute, you know, we look at the rationality of a human life over that entire arc. And so we extend those provisions even to those periods when, you know, we don't have those cognitive capabilities to their full extent. Now, if that's, you know, roughly along the right way of thinking about those attributions, you can think about an extension beyond that to say, you know, there was a time when we didn't actually exist, but where existence was potential. And so it's maybe not, you know, completely outrageous to think that we extend rights also just as we do to when we were you know infants and when we when we have dementia we extend rights beyond our our, our life in that sense um, but I don't want to take any further I can imagine I can imagine then instead of saying what about the rights of those who won't be born we should have a fertility rate of at least two but we don't yeah to those who Probably won't be born because people continue there. There were potential, but not in any extent. And the other thing which kind of reminded me, which is a point I was going to make, which I haven't made, was you know one of the things which sort of works in the background of all this are the ethical issues. So you know we always talk about this problem of oh you know one third of your lifetime medical expenditure takes place in the last three months of your life, and that that's crazy. And it's more complicated, in fact, when you look at the numbers. It's true that's the case, but it's actually not as large a case for the people who were, the people who are 95 don't spend that much on life-prolonging measures. Much of this expenditure takes place on people who are 60, my age, and a lot of them die. They couldn't be saved, but a lot of them survive. And so, um, and you wouldn't argue against life-prolonging measures when you're 60. But I, I, I throw this out because it, you know, the, the next jump to this is, you know, I go and visit my mother, who's 94, she's great, great shape, but, she, you know, I, she takes me down to the health center where her ex-boyfriend, she had a boyfriend when she was 94, was, and there are all these people in there who are literally vegetables, and they're sitting around, and you have to ask yourself, I mean, are they happy, are they, is there, I mean, are we, and that's looking ahead, we're going to spend a lot of resources on people who are, whose quality of life is a, is a question mark. That's, maybe that's the best way to put it. And I don't want to know, I don't want to go any further than that, except that this is a challenge that we're going, we are going to confront. Um, um, Great. Thank you. Well, listen, let's start.